Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesterfield Baptist Church, continuing in our series through the book of 1 Peter entitled Behind Enemy Lines. We're going to continue looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll finish the chapter this morning. The title of the message this morning is A Good Conscience. But also, uh, Peter takes us in a few different directions here. But uh, he's going to circle back around to what he's talking about. And we're going to go along with him on the journey. Please enjoy. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Continuing in our series in 1 Peter. Uh, behind enemy lines. The main gist of this book is it's focused on people that are suffering. So that's what Peter's doing. He's talking to these people who are suffering. These are people that they're, they're Jews who are now they've been forced out of Israel. Now they live in a Gentile land, what me and you would call Turkey. And, uh, they are just being persecuted and they're suffering and uh, the Jews don't want them. The Gentiles they live among don't want them. And so Peter's trying to help them. So that's kind of the main jest of the book of first Peter. That's why I entitled it behind enemy lines. If you have your places in first Peter chapter three, I'm going to ask you to stand one last time in respect and reverence to the word of God. What we're going to do is we're going to start reading in verse number 16. And we're going to read down to verse number 22. The Bible says, Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, that they may be ashamed falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water." The light figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. The title of the message this morning is Having a Good Conscience. Having a Good Conscience. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. I pray that the Word of God would fill us and the Spirit of God would empower us. And I pray that we glean from your Word of God those things that you would have us to, to learn or to be reassured of or the truths that you would have taught this morning. Lord, I pray that you bless the preaching of the Word of God. Bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't know about you, but I get nervous in courtrooms. I get nervous in courtrooms. I mean, most people do. Most people do. 
I've been on the witness stand a couple of t different times. And uh, I mean, it's not like I'm up there lying, but man, my voice still cracks. My heart still skips a beat. And, and what I think it goes back to is it goes back to me as a kid. When my parents got divorced, it was a very bitter, bitter divorce. We were in and out with custody battles. When I was a young child, nine, 10 years old, I was in and out of courtrooms. So I think that's kind of why I have a problem with, with courtrooms today. But I recently had to go to court for work. The insurance company uh, sent us a, a lawyer and I'm talking to the lawyer, we're talking about the case and um, I told him about this. I said, look, I get nervous in courtrooms, you know. It's just something I've all, it's always happened. And he said something, I, I shared that with him and this, this was a good guy. You know, a lot of lawyers you meet, not worth throwing, but this guy has come down from Jackson. He was a really good guy, originally from uh, Brookhaven. And I shared this with him and he said, you know, this is what he said to me that kind of helped me. He said, he said, look, just tell the truth. He said, whatever happens, happens. He said, even if we lose, tell the truth. You know, and, and that, that really, I mean, it wasn't like I was getting up there planning on lying. I was going to tell the truth. But, you know, hearing that, it kind of helped me because I was like, yeah, it doesn't matter what happens. As long as I tell the truth, I know I did the right thing. Tell the truth, let the chips fall where they may. I can have a good, clear conscience knowing that I told the truth and I did the right thing. Peter's going to go in a couple of different directions here in this passage, and then he's going to manage to circle back to it at the end. So let's just go through this passage this morning. Um, before we get into verse 16, we have to talk about verse 15 again. We talked about that last Sunday, but we got to back up and talk about verse 15 again because verse 15 kind of leads into verse 16. Let's go back and read verse 15 again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means set him apart in your heart. We talked about that. And always, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So, you know, we talked about this verse, and, and this is kind of the apologetics verse. And uh, not mean you've got to be an expert in the subject, but what this verse is telling us as Christian, you need to have a Bible reason for why you believe what you believe. A Bible reason, not a mama-daddy reason, not a preacher reason, not a grandma-grandpa reason, a Bible reason why you believe what you believe. Do you have a Bible reason? Now, look, I'm not telling you you got to quote chapter and verse every single time. I'm not telling you that. But what I am telling you, uh, you know, uh, that you, you need to know what you believe from the Bible. I'm not telling you you got to be a studied apologist. I'm not telling you you got to have a photographic memory. But what I am saying is, is you need to have heard it preached on or you need to have studied it on the big issues, the gospel, the deity of Christ, the authority of the Bible. The thing about it is, is Christians these days, they don't make learning about God a priority in their life. They don't make learning about God a priority anymore. So unfortunately, when the average Christian is pressed on these questions and somebody who's genuinely curious comes up and questions them about their faith, they can't tell them anything because they didn't make learning about God a priority in their life. 
And it's sad that most Christians are like that. But then, there's a flip side about it. Then the verse says to have meekness and fear. You know what that's for? That's for people who do know. That's for people who are studied. That's for people who do have a Bible reason for what they believe. You know what, you know what he's saying to them? He said, look, if somebody comes up to you and asks you some questions about your faith and you've got all the answers and you know what to tell them, he's saying do it with meekness and fear. And what that means? It means don't be arrogant about it. Don't be arrogant about it. Just because you know the answer to the question doesn't make you God's gift to apologetics. Okay? Doesn't make you God's gift to sinners. Okay? Just because you know the answer. You have to, you have to answer that with a dose of humility. Because somebody asks you at the Bible, you look down your nose at them and alienate them. How in the world are they going to come and get saved? You can't look down your nose at people just because you have the answer. Do it, answer them, but do it with meekness and fear. Don't be arrogant about it. If you, if you don't have a Bible reason for what you believe, get in that book and have a Bible reason. Get in it. Get a YouTube video about a preacher preaching about it and find it out. Don't let your standards be set by mom and daddy and grandpa and grandpa and your preacher growing up. No, no, you need to have a Bible reason for why you believe what you believe. And why do you believe what you believe about your salvation? And don't quote me just John 3.16. I want deeper than John 3.16. Give me Bible reason why you know you're saved. Get in there. Find it. If you do have these reasons, because you do study the word of God, don't be arrogant about it. Be humble about it. You're not God's gift to apologetics, which is just knowing why you believe something. Don't alienate the people that's asking you about your faith because how in the world are they going to come to a saving knowledge of Christ if you alienate them? Verse 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Now this phrase, good conscience, it's really neat. But it's misunderstood a lot of the time. It's misunderstood. Look, is a good conscience enough for a person to have? Like, if I have a good conscience, that's enough. Okay? Well, you know, I, you know, I have a good conscience. Even if other people don't like me, my conscience is clear. Okay? What does that mean? Does it mean that that as long as I don't feel guilty, everything's okay. As long as I don't feel guilty, everything's okay. Well, that sounds a little off. That sounds a little off. That sounds like the world. That sounds like how the world treats guilt. As long as I don't feel guilty, I'm okay. Let me tell you something about guilt. Guilt, it's not a feeling, it's a condition. Guilt isn't a feeling, it's a condition. If I go to the doctor and I ask the doctor, hey doc, how am I doing? The doctor says, well, you have cancer. All of a sudden, I feel like I have cancer. All of a sudden, I, I feel like it. 
Um, because you do. And now you know about it. You're made aware of it. But the cancer actually existed before you felt it, before you were made aware of it. But then the doctor says to you, look, just don't focus on it. The doctor says, look, if you ignore it, it'll go away. That's a horrible doctor. That's a horrible doctor, okay? Ignoring it is not going to make it go away. Don't do that. Don't ignore it. That's not going to make it go away. And in fact, a real doctor, a good doctor, wants you to know you have cancer because it's going to motivate you to seek treatment. A good doctor wants you to know you're sick. doesn't want you to ignore it. That's what the world wants you to do. The world wants you to ignore it. You know what the world likes to say? They love to say this. Hey, the world says, hey, hey, listen, forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. How in the world can I forgive myself for what I've done to other people? What if I just went up to Miss Emily and kicked her down a flight of stairs? She goes tumbling down the stairs and she's down there crying. Why did you do that? And I looked down there and said, it's okay, honey. I forgive myself. You know, I don't think that'd fly. You know, I'd go over like a lead balloon. But you know what? I don't have the right to forgive myself. I don't have the right to forgive myself. Why am I trying to forgive myself? Because I'm trying to get rid of the feelings of guilt. I want to forgive myself because I want the feelings of guilt to go away when what I should be concentrating on is getting rid of my condition of guilt. If I need to get rid, if I get rid of my condition of guilt, the feelings go away, but I get rid of my feelings, my guilt's still there. So I need to try to get rid of the feelings of guilt. I need to get rid of my actual guilt, my condition of guilt. A clear conscience is being clear of the condition of guilt. A, a, a good conscience is when you can say, I'm not guilty. And there's two ways to be not guilty. Two ways. Way number one is don't fail in the first place. Well, that ship has sailed for us. Okay? That ship is long gone. Okay? So then all we have now is option number two. Option number two is I can be forgiven by the person who has the ability to forgive me. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the only person that has the ability to forgive me. So as Christians being forgiven by Christ, we have the ability to have a good conscience. Because of Christ, I am not guilty anymore. Why is this important? Why is this important in what, what Peter's teaching here? Because... It's important because I need to have a good conscience in the face of opposition because sometimes that's all you have. Sometimes that's all you have. When the world comes up against you and the world attacks you and they've got more money and more power and they're after you, sometimes the only thing you have is the knowledge that you still did the right thing. It's the only thing you've got. It's knowing, look, everybody in the world's against me. Everybody's coming down on me. But I know, according to this Bible, I did the right thing. I have a good conscience. I have a clear conscience. Because I am not guilty. That book tells me so. The world is going to say, you are not doing the right thing. The world's going to say that. 
A woman has control over her own body. It is her choice. You're against women's health. Well, I tell you what, I can have a good conscience knowing I'm against abortion. I can have a good conscience knowing that when I vote, every single time I vote, I vote against abortion. Every single time. They call us pro-lifers like it's some sort of insult. That's not an insult. That's a compliment. Call me a pro-lifer all you want. They roll their eyes as they say it like it's some big put down. And it's not. But you know, having a good conscience doesn't mean I'm always right. Doesn't mean I'm always right. Think about David in the Psalms. This Psalm over here, David saying, um, look at my notes. Over here, David saying, um, you know, uh, I have a clear conscience. He's saying, my, oh, my hands are clean. That's what I'm looking for. And this Psalms over here, he'd say, look, my hands are clean. But over here in this Psalm, he says, I'm guilty and I deserve to die. Well, which is it, David? Are your hands clean or are you guilty? What's David saying? David's saying, look, over here, I have a clear conscience because I did the right thing. But I'm not perfect. And I mess up. And I'm not always going to do the right thing. So over here, I'm guilty. You get it? And when we mess up, we're not going to be perfect either. We're going to mess up and we're going to do bad, stupid things over and over. We're not always going to choose the right choice. We're not always going to do the right thing. But in those situations where we did do the right thing, we can say, I have a clear conscience because I know I did right. So when we have a good conscience, it doesn't mean we're perfect and holy and righteous. But just let us know in that one area, I did the right thing. So with that in mind of what a good conscience is, let's read the verse again. Is anybody too warm or is everybody good? Okay, it's just me. All right, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, that may be a shame that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So what are they attacking in this verse? Are they attacking the times I messed up? Are they attacking the times that I sinned? No. They're attacking my good conversation. They're attacking my good conduct in Christ. They aren't attacking us because we're tearing down civilization. They're attacking us because we're preaching the gospel. They're attacking us because we stand for life. Sometimes all we have is, is our good conscience. Knowing that we did the right thing and our conscience is clear. And one day, when we all stand before Jesus Christ, they will be the ones ashamed and not us. Because I have a clear conscience. The world is attacking us. The world is saying we should be the ones that are ashamed. We should be ashamed because we preach Christ only and condemning all other faiths to hell. We should be ashamed because we preach that a wife should submit to her husband. We should be ashamed because we preach that the book says that marriage is between a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. We, we should be ashamed because we preach against abortion, even in the case of rape. They want you to be ashamed. But guess what? I have a good conscience. 
I have a clear conscience. I am not ashamed to stand up here and declare the truth. I can do it with a good, clear conscience. They can attack us all they want. They're not going to make me feel bad about the truth. Ultimately, we have two choices in this life. You can either live for God's approval or you can live for man's approval. That's your choice. What Jesus have to say about it? Luke 6, 26. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. If everybody loves you and everybody thinks you're fantastic and everybody just loves you, well, you're probably making some compromises. That's probably why they love you because you're making compromises. I gave this illustration maybe a couple weeks ago, but it just popped in my head when talking about Mother Teresa, put the Catholicism aside. But Mother, Mother Teresa, she, she, you know, she did all this humanitarian work and everybody loved her. No matter what religion you were, everybody loved Mother Teresa. And so they came to Mother Teresa, so how, what do you do when you come with somebody who's not of your faith? You try, to, you try to proselyte them, do you try to convert them? And she said, no, if I meet a, a, a Muslim, I just tell them to be a better Muslim. <coughs> If I meet a Buddhist, I just tell them to be a better Buddhist. Well, no wonder everybody liked her. You know, that's called relativism. Everybody, different paths all leading to the same place. Okay? No wonder everybody liked her. So if everybody likes you, you probably, you're probably messing up. True Christians, on the other hand, are going to expect a confrontation because true Christians know that persecution is coming. Opposition is coming. You will suffer persecution. So here's a question. Where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line and say, I'm going to stand for the faith and I'm going to speak up or I'm going to turn and walk away from it? Where's the line there? Where's the line? The line, I think, is in 2 Timothy 2.24. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, and the servant of the Lord, well, let, let me say this, before we read the verse, let me say that, look, you could be talking to anybody, and a hot-button topic could come up. You know, you, whether you're talking to other Christians, or you're talking to lost people, sometimes people just get hot over. Politics is one. Uh, you talk about, to some people, you talk about homosexuality, abortion, politics. Man, these are hot button topics. So how do you know when it's time to walk away? Well, back to our verse in 2 Timothy 2, 24, and it says, and the servant of the Lord must not strive. You know what that word strive there it means quarrel. It means fight. So the moment your discussion or even your disagreement, the moment it falls into quarrel, the moment it falls into fight with words, well, then it's time to walk away. It's time to stop. So have an answer. Have an answer for them. They question about your faith. You have an answer for them, but don't quarrel. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, and don't cast your pearls to the swine. If they're genuine and they genuinely want to know, bless God, talk to them and tell them the truth. But if they're just trying to drag you into an endless debate and an argument, walk away. Verse 17 and 18. 
For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So these verses, you know what this kind of does? This kind of flies in the face of prosperity preaching. It kind of flies in the face of prosperity preaching. Here's what prosperity preaching usually does. Prosperity preaching goes in the Old Testament and and finds these promises to to Israel that if they obey the law, then they'll be uh, blessed financially, they'll be blessed physically. Then they bring those promises into the New Testament and ignore the audience of those promises, ignore the requirements of those promises, and then ignore what the New Testament says about suffering. Like these verses here in 1 Peter. I'll find where I'm at in a second. Uh, All right, so let's look at this verse again. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing. Wait a second. Wait a second. Does that not say that sometimes it is God's will for me to suffer? Sometimes it is God's will for me to suffer. Now, not just to suffer for suffering's sake, but rather the suffering is a means to an end. God can take my suffering and make it mean something. God can take my suffering and glorify himself with it. Now, look, I don't want to go like completely against prosperity preaching all the way because, I mean, I don't want to scare you away from being a Christian Oh, being a Christian is nothing but persecution. No, no, no. Being a Christian is still better than anything else you can be. Being a Christian and being close to God is better than not being a Christian and not being close to God. It's not all suffering in the Christian life. Like, for example, like, I can't stand up here and tell you that if you tithe, you will have more money at the end of the month than if you didn't tithe. I can't tell you that because I don't know the future. I can't say that. I can tell you that God has the ability to allow you to live better off 90% than you can off of 100. I can tell you that. But can I stand up here and tell you you're going to be able to pay every single bill? No. No, I, 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 I can't tell you that. There are times when people do tithe. The Lord blesses them with a windfall just, just, just to prove his blessing, to, to prove his provision. But you know the real problem with prosperity preaching is? The real problem that is timing. Because they focus, prosperity preaching, it focuses on this world instead of the world to come. It focuses on the temporary instead of the eternal. It focuses on the outer self instead of the inner self. That you suffer... Um, So as a Christian, I am in the prosperity of God for my life, okay? Uh, But it's not for this world, it's for the next. It's not for temporary things, it's for eternal things. It's, It's sometimes my outer self will suffer, but it's for the prosperity of my inner self. That you suffer for well doing than for doing evil. No Christian can stand up and say, Lord, I'm suffering, Lord. I'm in jail because I robbed that bank for Christ. I was going to tithe off of it, God. I was going to give it to the missionaries. No, 
No, it doesn't work that way. But if you did the right thing and you're still suffering, it's okay. Because he can bring his glory out of it. And we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean everything's going to work out for your good. That means it's going to work out for the good. And then he gives an example of Christ. He says, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, uh, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. If God used Jesus' suffering for such glory to bring the, the salvation to the world, don't you think he can use your suffering? Don't you think that, he can, that if he used Christ's suffering, that he can use your suffering? But you know what this is? When we suffer as Christians, this is where we like to play the spiritual guessing game. Spiritual guessing game. And we try to figure out, how is the Lord going to use my suffering for good? Like, how are you going to use my suffering? And we try to figure it out. I had this flat tire on the side of the road. So maybe when I walk down to the park store, I'm going to see somebody I can witness to. Or maybe my car's on the side of the road and my uh, Bible verse bumper sticker is going to get into somebody's heart. You never know how God's going to work it out. We try to figure out how is God going to use my suffering. And we try to guess um, how he's going to use it for his good. But that's not our place. It's not our place to don't try to figure out how God's going to use your suffering for good, just have faith that he'll do it. Don't try to figure it out. Don't play the guessing game. How, oh, this is really bad, but if I figure out how God's going to use it, it'll help me. Just know he's going to use it. Just have faith he's going to use it for good. Don't try to guess and figure it out. That's not our place. These next two verses are interesting. We'll take us down a little path here. Verse 19 and 20. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Okay, this is really interesting where Peter goes here. And I'm going to do my best to unpack, my absolute best to unpack this for you. Just... Try to follow me if you've, some of you might, I'm going to be saying some stuff. You're like, what in the world is he talking about? But uh, just try to, try, try to follow me here because this means different things to different people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all the options. I'm going to give you all the options and then I'm going to tell you what I believe and then I'm going to let you decide for yourself. Now, when it talks about these two verses here, some people this, think this is a, a, a reference to the Nephilim. Who's ever heard of the Nephilim? Nephilim, um, the Nephilim are, people think, are, are angels that possessed humans before the flood and had babies with men. And then the Nephilim were this half angel, half human beings, these fallen beings. So back in Genesis, you had the sons of God married the daughters of men. And then they had these race, these people called Nephilim. Now, um, the reason why they believe that is because in Job, sons of God are called, uh, the, the angels are called the sons of God, okay? So the thinking is, is that before the flood, these angels possessed men, and they had wives, 
and they had children, and these children were half angel, half human, and they were called the Nephilim. And uh, that's what, uh, and, and look, there's a case to be made here. Because, you know, in, 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 second, in second Peter, he talks about the flood again, and right before that, he talks about fallen angels being chained in hell. Okay, well, here in first Peter, he talks about the flood, and right before that, it says, uh, it says that the spirits are in prison, so prison, chain. So there's a case to be made here that this is what he's talking about, okay? Another way to look at it is simply that, and, and, and look, if you believe that, I am not here to disprove that. I'm not here to throw water on that. I'm saying it's, it's the very good possibility. I'm not disagreeing with you per se. I'm just telling you what I think. I, you know, the other thinking at that is sons of God just means that they were godly men and that the daughters of men just means there were worldly women and they got together and they had kids and these kids were Nephilim. And you know what Nephilim means? Nephilim means giant. Those were big. They were big guys. They were big Samoan-looking guys, you know? They were like Andre the Giant, you know, walking around the street. And, you know, back then they didn't have guns, so brute strength was, man, you were really strong. You could control that. You could control a lot. And so these were just a, kind of a race or, or people that were just really big and muscular and strong and tall. And, and you know, and so... Look, now, like I said, if you believe that the Nephilim were part angelic beings, I'm not here to disprove that. I'm not here to, to throw water on that. I'm just, I'm just giving you the options here. But even if the Nephilim are the fallen angels, which when it talks in 2 Peter about, when it talks in 2 Peter about the angels being chained in hell, you know, there are angels that when they fell, they couldn't roam freely. God had to chain them up, Okay. And I kind of look at it like they're chained for the end days. You know, when revelation happens, the earth is going to open up. These creatures are going to come out that are demons. So in a very good, you know, if, if, if the Nephilim are, aren't really just half angelic, half human beings, you know, then these angels that are chained up in hell right now are just so bad they can't be roaming around. And a good chance they're the ones that are going to be free during the end times. That's the way I kind of look at it. But, you know, I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying that's 100%. But, but my thing is here, I don't think he's going down here to, what would be the purpose of, 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 of Christ going down and preaching to these fallen angels? What would be the purpose of it? I just don't see what, the, what, what, what they would gain from that. There's no redemption for angels. I don't see what the, the purpose of it would be. So let me give you another option of what these verses mean. Some people believe it to mean that the spirit of Christ, not in between the cross and the, 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 the resurrection, but the spirit of Christ before the flood was preaching to these people and now they're in prison. So, uh, and I'm not going to say that's untrue because we know that before the flood, the spirit of God strove with man and the spirit of God was trying to get these people saved and they were rejecting them. That's why God was done with them and said, I'm going to flood the earth, but I'm going to save Noah and his family because I'm tired of striving with man. I've been trying to get these people saved and they won't have faith. They won't have saved. I'm tired of them. Well, the spirit of Christ did try to do that. Okay. Um, so look, you know, I see this verse another way. I'm about to tell you how I see it. But let me say this. Um, if you say, well, I, I see it one of those other first two ways. It's okay. It's okay. Guess what? Um, we can still fellowship. 
We can, we can still we can still get along. If you see it another way, that's fine. Now, looks. When I say that, I'm not saying we're both right. We can't both be right. You can't say, oh, well, this is what the scripture means to you, but this is what it means to me. Well, one of you is wrong, okay? There's only one right interpretation, okay? That's it. Uh, but we can't get bent out of shape about every time we disagree on just a, a little thing, a little detail. We're not going to agree on every simple little thing, you know? As long as it doesn't impact our faith, looking at things from a different perspective is healthy, you know, it's, 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 it's really, look, there's some cool stuff in the Bible. I think this is a really, really interesting study. You know, this is like my Bible nerd came out when I was studying this, you know. So it's, it's some cool stuff in here. But here's what I believe this verse is teaching. I'm about to lay out for you the belief or doctrine, whatever you want to call it, on paradise. Okay. Before Christ died, Sheol was the holding place of all the dead. Okay, which was in the center of the earth. It was down. It was for the lost and it was for the saved. Inside of Sheol, the lost obviously went to hell. But the Old Testament saints, they couldn't go to hell because they were saved. But they couldn't go to heaven to be with God because Jesus hadn't died yet. So they went to the center of the earth to a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Okay. Uh, between these two places was a great gulf fixed. So that if you were over in here, you couldn't go over here to Abraham's bosom or paradise. If you were in paradise, you couldn't go over to hell because in between was a great gulf fixed. We know this because of the story of rich man, the rich man Lazarus in Luke 16. Let me read for you Luke 16, 26. And beside all this between us and you, there is a great goal fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. You know what's special about this story of rich man and the Lazarus? What's special about it is it's not a parable. It's a true story. Jesus doesn't name names in parables. The man, the woman, the rich man, the poor man, the Samaritan. He doesn't name real names and parables. If he gives you a real name, it is a true story. So this story is something that actually happened. It actually happened. The Bible tells us that Jesus, I'm going to lay all this out for you. The Bible tells us that Jesus spent three days after the cross in the heart of the earth. That's what the Bible says. So, you know, some people actually believe that Jesus burned in hell for three days people believe that you know i actually had a college professor that taught me that in bible college jesus burned in hell for three days he even had something catchy he said the immortal the infinite person spent a finite time in hell that way the finite man wouldn't spend an infinite it was infinite time in hell it was it was crazy and so, you know, that's in, that's in Yankee land. I'm from south, and I get on the bus to work, and I start telling people, that's kind of that's not right. And, man, when I told these northern people that Jesus didn't burn in hell, they thought I was talking heresy. They're calling me a heretic and stuff. And so then a month, it was so great. Oh, it was so great. A month later, the pastor of the church, you always like it when you're vindicated, you know, like I talked about last week. Ha, <laughs> ha, justice. And, you know, uh, when, uh, a month later, the pastor is preaching on this, and he preaches that Jesus didn't burn in hell. He preached that in front of all those college students, and I, oh, I sat back, and I just enjoyed it. But, you know, I was vindicated. 
But, you know, people actually preach that. Jesus didn't burn in hell. Jesus didn't burn in hell. However, he did spend three days in paradise preaching to the Old Testament saints. Um, you know what, 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 what Jesus say to the thief? He said, today thou art be with me in paradise. Let me read for you Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, okay, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He descended in the same also that is ascended up far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, okay? When he, he, he went into the lower parts of the earth, he ascended. When he ascended, he led captivity captive. Matthew 27, 52, and 53, we see from that scripture that when Jesus rose from the dead, other Old Testament saints rose from the dead too. Other people resurrected when Jesus resurrected. Okay? So we know that happened. When Jesus came up, he brought people with him. After Jesus' death, something switched. Something switched after Jesus' death. Before Jesus' death, everybody that died went to Sheol. They went, they went, the Bible says they went down to Sheol. Uh, Jesus even taught that in Luke 16. Let me give you a few scriptures telling us where saints went before the ascension of Christ. Genesis 37, 35. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, for I will go down into the grave. That word grave there, it's the word she-hole. It's not talking about a six-foot hole in the ground. When you see the word grave in the Old Testament, it's not talking about a six-foot hole in the ground. It's the word she-hole. She-hole is the holding place of the dead. Okay? Uh, Psalms 88.3, for my soul was full of troubles and my life draweth nigh unto the grave, Sheol. Uh, Job 14.13, oh, that thou wouldest hide me in the Sheol, in the grave, Sheol, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be passed and thou wouldest appoint me a set time. So this Sheol, it's always down, even referencing a saved, born again person that died in the Old Testament. When it references Sheol, they went down to Sheol. After the ascension, however, of Christ, something switched. Something switched. Uh, now, now the saints are in heaven with God. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, which were written in heaven, to the God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So now when people die, now they go to this place called heaven. And now it's not down anymore. After the ascension, the direction goes up. So before Christ's death, people always go down. After the ascension of Christ, now people go up. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. Revelation 4.1, And this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the, and the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talk with me, which saith, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So when Jesus died, he went to paradise. He preached 
for those three days. We know that because we put all of this evidence in the Bible together. Now, it's interesting, though. Verse 20 says, verse 20 says, which were sometimes disobedient. Now, why would he say that about the Old Testament saints? Why would he say that about them? I mean, it's not like they were disobedient. I mean, they were, aren't they in paradise because they were obedient in the faith? So what I think Peter's trying to do here is like a good preacher, he's trying to segue into his next point. He's trying to segue into his next illustration, which is the flood. His next point is the flood. He's trying to flow into his next point. Okay, so now he starts talking about the people who died in Noah's day who were there hearing him preach as a way to go into the next point. You say, well, how could the people who died who were lost in Noah's day hear Jesus preach? Well, here we go. When Christ is preaching in paradise, he's preaching in Abraham's bosom to the Old Testament saints. He's pre now, these are saved but they don't, they don't know the gospel of Christ. They, they believed in the Messiah, so they're saved, but they don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling them. But while he's preaching the Old Testament saints in paradise, people over in hell can hear him. Okay, We know that from Luke 16. We know from Luke 16, sorry, rich man and Lazarus, we know that people over in hell can look over into paradise. They can even hear people talk over in paradise. We know that from Luke 16. So Jesus is down there preaching. To the Old Testament saints, he's preaching a message of redemption. The people over in hell, he's preaching a message of condemnation. They can't get saved. Their time is over. All they had was the time on the earth. I'm not saying that they're going to, people in hell hurt them and could get saved. No, their time is over. But they're hearing a message of condemnation. Okay? So this could be what meant when it says that he was preaching to people that disobeyed him. Now look, if you're for the Nephilim theory, guess what? If it, it, it fits too because if the Nephilim were down there chained up, they heard him preach as well. Okay? Now when we get into chapter 4, we're going to bring up Jesus preaching to the dead again. So that's coming in chapter 4. We'll talk about that when we get to it. I know that was a roller coaster. And if you have any questions, write them down. We can talk after the service or come sometime this week if you have any questions about this doctrine. But, but that's my thinking on, on what it is. Um, uh, not that he's referencing the Spirit of God that witnessed to the uh, people in Noah's day and now they're in prison, and not that it was the Nephilim, although if you believe that, that's fine. Though there's a good case to be made about that. I personally believe I don't see the point in preaching the fallen angels. And I think that what he's actually preaching here, other places he's preaching the Old Testament saints. And I think here Peter's just referencing, hey, those people over in hell, they heard him preach too. Because in chapter 4 he talks about preaching to the dead. Okay, moving on. That was just a recap. Verse 21 and 22. The light figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is now on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So this verse is preached that baptism saves us. And that's how people preach it. If you're not baptized and you're not saved, well, this isn't correct. 
And it, I, want, it, I want you to read this. I want to read this verse to you from the New King James. This is what the New King James says. There is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good, good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is an anti-type? What in the world is an anti-type? Well, a type is a shadow or a preview of something. And then the anti-type is the thing itself. Let's say I'm walking around this corner of the building and you're walking around this corner of the building and the sun's at my back and as I'm walking, you see my shadow cast on the ground before I get there. So you're seeing my shadow on the ground, that is a type of me. Well, when I turn the corner, here I am, I am the anti-type. So my shadow was the type, but I am the anti-type. So the Old Testament would have a type or shadows or previews of a New Testament anti-type of Jesus or a reality or truth. For instance, the bronze serpent was lifted up and when they looked at it, they were saved. That was a type of Christ. It was a picture of Christ. And so if the bronze serpent is the type, the anti-type is Jesus. Uh, the Moses struck, struck the rock and the water poured out. The living water flowed out of the rock. Of course, that is a type of Christ, Jesus being the anti-type or what it really was. So now we're going to talk about the flood. And so the Old Testament shadow that's going to teach us about a New Testament reality here is the flood. It rained for 40 days. Um, they went on the ark 40 days. It just rained for 40 days. They were on the ark for a year. Now, I want you to notice they, weren't, they were saved through water. Notice that they weren't saved by the water. They weren't saved by the water. They were saved through the water. The water didn't save them. The water was there to kill them. What saved them? The boat. The ark. The ark is what saved them. The ark is a picture of Christ. The ark is a type of Christ. The anti-type is baptism. Now, some people say this means baptism saves, but if you read this really carefully, it's a, uh, a baptism is a picture of what they went through. They were soaked in water, and they came out the other side with new life, and that's a picture of what baptism represents. You know, it says we're saved by baptism, and then it says not the putting away the filth of the flesh. What's the putting away the filth of the flesh? It's a bath. He's saying you're saved by baptism, not the dunking of the water. Okay, not the dunking of the water. That's the water. Uh, the water is not what saves you, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. What is that? Where my heart goes, Lord. I trust, I trust in Christ, I'm cleansed of my actual guilt, and now I'm forgiven. That is what saves. So what is it that saves? It's the thing that baptism represents. That's what saves. Here's another way to read this verse. So baptism saves you. And in case you took that the wrong way, I'm not talking about dunking in the water. It's what it represents, your salvation testimony and your profession of faith in his resurrection. That's what saves you. So what saves you is what baptism represents. Look, there are plenty of examples in the Bible of people getting saved without baptism. 
Plenty of examples. One that comes to mind is Acts 10 Cornelius. These are, this is a group of Gentiles that they weren't baptized, they weren't circumcised, they heard about Jesus and were received him. So they went to go talk to Peter. Peter comes down to talk to him, and while they're talking to him, they get filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, well, look, obviously these guys are saved. They need to get baptized. He didn't say, oh, oh, they need to get baptized to get saved. If they weren't saved, how'd they get the Holy Spirit? Okay? He said, oh, obviously these, these people are saved. They need to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. When I explain baptism to somebody, I use my wedding ring. I've been on a diet lately, so it comes off easier, okay? But, uh, but uh, I, I, I use my wedding ring, and I said, baptism's like your wedding ring. Let me ask you a question. If I take this wedding ring off and I set it down, am I still married? Yeah, I'm still married, even though I don't have my wedding ring on. What is this, what is this, what's the purpose of it then? It's a picture. It shows people that I am married, keeps the chicks away. Okay, so it just shows people that I am married, even though it doesn't make me married. It shows people that I am married. And that's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism shows people that you are saved. Let me end on this statement. The ark experienced the flood. So those people wouldn't have to experience it. Jesus died on the cross, and he suffered my judgment so I wouldn't have to. And just like the ark, after it went through the flood, those people, they lived in that ark. They abided in that ark. And once Jesus saves us from our sin, we can abide in him.